So happy Easter. I really am glad that you are here. Those of you here in the room joining together with our group down in Skagit at our Skagit campus and those of you online, uh, so glad that we're all together, that we can all come together to celebrate this great thing. And not just us together as Cornwall Church, Bellingham, Skagit online and such, but around the world that in every time zone, on every continent, in countless languages, people are gathering today to celebrate this great event, the greatest event in all of human history, this reality that Jesus Christ was crucified, he was buried, but on the third day he came back to life and he is risen. You got that one right. And that's why we celebrate, and that's why we're here today, and I'm so glad that you're here with us to celebrate this. Ken Davis wrote of a similar, not as significant, but a similar, similar kind of a situation that happened. He wrote this. He said, a woman looked out the window of her home and was horrified to see her German shepherd shaking the life out of the neighbor's pet rabbit. Her family had been quarreling with these neighbors. This was certainly going to make matters worse. She grabbed a broom and ran outside, pummeling the pooch until he dropped the rabbit, now covered with dog spit and extremely dead. What was she going to do? The woman lifted the rabbit with the end of the broom and brought it into the house. She dumped its lifeless body into the bathtub and turned on the shower. When the water running off the rabbit was clean, she rolled him over and rinsed the other side. Now she had a plan. She found her hairdryer and blew the rabbit dry. Using an old comb, she groomed the rabbit until he looked pretty good. Then when the neighbor wasn't looking, she hopped over the fence, sneaked across the backyard, and propped him up in his cage. No way was she going to take the blame for this. About an hour later, she heard screams coming from the neighbor's yard. She ran outside pretending she didn't know what was going on. Her neighbor came out running to the fence, all the blood drained from her face, screaming, Our rabbit, our rabbit, she blubbered. He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. <laughs> oh, man, what we celebrate today is not a corpse that was washed and groomed and stood up in the corner like weekend at Bernie's. No, we, re we rejoice and we celebrate that Jesus died, and he was alive again, and he is alive today. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus said these words, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. Listen, if you're going to make that kind of statement, you better be able to back it up. Because it's extreme to say I was dead and now I'm alive, but to say I'm alive forever and ever, that would include today. And that's why for 2,000 years, people have been gathering to remember and to celebrate this reality. The reality that Jesus Christ is alive. And the reality is this as well. That for 2,000 years... This message has been met with skepticism and doubt, unbelief, and a lot of questions, and rightfully so. It's not normal. It's an extreme event. And so today in our time together, I want to talk about some Easter questions. Not so much to answer all of your questions, but to talk about some questions that will at least cause you to think. That's what I'm going to ask you to do today. Think about some questions and I think if we're going to look at a bunch of questions, and you'll see a bunch of them throughout the day, I think we need to start with the keystone question. I don't know if you know what a keystone is. Up on our, our uh, platform here today, we have an arch. And at the apex of the arch is this, this wedge that's referred to as a keystone. In, in arch, architecture of arches, when they were made with stones, the keystone, or the capstone is also called, the keystone is what locked it all together. 
And everything was dependent on this keystone. Because if the keystone was there and it's all locked together, it all functions perfectly. But if the keystone is removed, the whole thing falls apart. Likewise, with questions regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a keystone question that I think we have to start with. And it may seem a little bit simple, but if this one isn't there, the whole thing falls apart. We don't really need to ask any other questions. The keystone question regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is it true? That's the keystone question. Either it is or it isn't. Either he rose from the dead or he didn't. Either he's alive or he's dead. There's no kinda in this one. You can't say, well, he was kinda resurrected. I mean, he kinda died and they, they kinda buried him and he kinda came back. No, no, it, either he did or he didn't. He was or he wasn't. He is or he never was. Uh, Tim Keller, yesterday on his Facebook page, he, he put this quote, he said, if Jesus ra was raised from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, why would you worry about anything he said? There's a, a historian from Yale. His name is Jaroslav Jer Pelikan. He said this, if Christ is raised, nothing else matters. If Christ is not raised, nothing else matters. It's profound. You see, we can still have our celebration. We can still dress up in our pastels. We can still have our ham dinners. We can still have flowers and Easter egg baskets and bunnies and chocolate. And for some of you peeps, not me, but for some of you, you can have all of that stuff, but put all the religious, the spiritual, the significant stuff away. You can still have all that and not have him raised from the dead. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a little more grim. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if this keystone questions, it's not true. If he's not raised from the dead, then our message, what we talk about here, it's useless. And the faith that so many of us hold, it's futile. And what that means is that we're all still in our sins. And we're hopeless. In fact, he ends it with this way. If that's the case then we're to be pitied more than everybody. But he follows it up and he says, but he is risen indeed. That's where we get that phrase from, 1 Corinthians 8, 15. He's risen indeed. And the followers of Jesus, the ones who had seen him on the cross, the ones who had seen him at the tomb and, and buried, the ones who saw him afterwards, they believed it. Not hundreds of years later, but days later. In Acts chapter 2, we read these words, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Listen, these words, sometimes people say, well, this whole concept of the resurrection, that, that kind of evolved. It's a legend that kind of grew over hundreds of years. Isn't that really the case? No, not at all. These words were spoken months after. This was right away. There had not been time for legend to grow. They believed this. You see, on Friday when he was crucified, no one believed in him anymore. On Saturday when he was buried, no one, at that point, on Friday and Saturday, there's not a thing you could do to start this movement of Christ followers. But on Sunday, there was not a thing that this world could ever do to stop it. Something happened. Not over hundreds of years, from Saturday to Sunday. And it changed their lives. They would stake their lives on them. For them, Easter wasn't about pastels and bunnies and chocolate. For them, it was about life. It was about salvation. It was about eternity. And they had it all riding on this fact, not the teachings of Jesus, 
the event that he is alive. They would stake their life on it. They would risk their life for it. They would give their life for this. And it changed everything. And it transformed them from being these scared disciples, cowering, afraid that they might die, to being bold, proclaiming this truth in the power of the resurrection, doing amazing things because Jesus was alive. And people began to hear this and they began to believe it. And they would continue to proclaim this truth even when there was threats on their life, even when they were arrested, even when they were abused and beaten, and they were commanded, don't talk about this Jesus. And more and more people began to believe and began to experience the power of the resurrection. There's, a, there's an event that happened. It's recorded in Acts chapter 5, where Peter and some of the apostles were preaching about Jesus, and more and more people were believing. And some of the Jewish leaders were getting jealous. So Peter and the apostles, they'd been... They had been warned, they had been arrested, they had been beaten, and yet again it happens. They continue to talk about this Jesus being alive. And there was stuff that caused these Jewish religious leaders to be very uncomfortable. So they bring them in again. They bring them into a thing called the Sanhedrin. In first century Jewish world, the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of all things religious and judicial in their community. The only thing that could override the supreme court would be things under Roman law. But it was this, kind of the this, this supreme court. And as Peter and these apostles are brought in before the highest authority in their, in their world, uh, in their Jewish world, the, the Sanhedrin, they are they're questioned about this and they are told two things. Stop saying that Jesus is alive. Stop saying that because you're making us look bad. You're making us look guilty. This is what I love about Peter. They told him, stop saying Jesus is alive. Stop making us look bad. You know what his response was? You can read this on your own in, in Acts 5. You know what his response was? God raised him from the dead and you guys killed him. That's the very things they said don't say anymore. And he says it right to them. I love that. And then it says this in Acts chapter 5. But when they, the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them, Peter and the apostles, to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this Gamaliel. Gamaliel was not the high priest. He didn't necessarily have the title or the position, but he had the authority. Everyone looked to him. He had the, in their world, he would be like a combination of Gandalf and Yoda. He was the one that had the insight. He was the one that had the wisdom. Yeah, there were other people in different positions, but people looked at him. They honored him. In fact, if you could be like mentored under him, that was like this sign, a badge of honor. Paul would say later, I, I grew up, I, I learned at the feet of Gam Gamaliel. I mean, I, this is amazing. So here he is in this wisdom, and they're all clamoring for these guys to be put to death. And he stands up and grabs their attention. They all listen to him. said, could we have those guys go outside for a few minutes? And when they leave, he begins to just talk to them. And he gives them a little history lesson. Again, you can read this on your own in, in Acts chapter 5. He says to the Sanhedrin, he says, Do you remember Theodos? Theodos, who was going to overthrow Rome. Theodos was going to bring this uprising. He gathered about 400 men and they were going to take, you remember that whole thing? And they're all like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, we remember that. He says, and then Theodos was killed, 
And all of his followers were dispersed. You remember that? And then he does another one. He says, you remember during like the time of the census, there was that guy from, from the Galilee, another Judas, Judas the Galilean. And he was going to raise up a big revolt. And he got a bunch of followers with him. And they were going to overthrow. Remember that whole thing? And it was, this was the deal. And, and what, what happened to that guy? Remember? Well, yeah, he, he died. And then it just kind of dissolved. And in his wisdom, Gamaliel is saying, these kind of things have a shelf life. I mean, let's think about it in our situation. You remember Double Rainbow guy? I mean, that guy went viral. And then he died. No one ever talks about him except me today. It's like, they just kind of fizzle out. So Gamaliel is saying, listen, if you go after these guys, you're going to get everybody against you. So it says this in Acts chapter 5, verse 38. Therefore, this is Gamaliel saying, therefore, in the present case, I advise you. I like to hear him more say, mm, advise you, I will. So he says, advise you, I will. Leave these men alone. Let them go. To which, you know, the, the, the crowd is like, what? Why? Wait, 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 wait. How can we do that? And then Gamaliel, in his wisdom, gives him an if-then situation. So, guys, let's not be rash. Let's not be reactionary. Let's go about this in a reasonable way. Let's think this through. And this is what he says of his reasoning, why they should let them go. If, his if then, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, if this is just another, you know, wannabe Messiah, like we've seen before, Theodos and, and Judas and those guys, if this is just another human origin, then it will fail. Basically saying to them, let it run its course. You don't have to fight this. It will fall apart. And then he throws out another if then. But if it is from God then you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, we don't know if Gamaliel was kind of sympathetic towards the things of Christ, maybe as kind of a closet believer. We don't know that. At worst case scenario, he's neutral because he says, you, he doesn't put himself in with them. He doesn't say, we will be fighting against God. He says, you will be. And they take his advice that makes sense. So they bring Peter and the apostles back in and they warn them yet again, stop talking about Jesus, stop doing things in his name, and then they beat them, they, they flog them. This would be, in our day and age, illegal, cruel, and unusual punishment. But they do that and then they, they send them off. And the idea would be that this, like the other movements, would flounder for a while, start to fizzle out, and eventually fail. But it didn't it actually began to flourish. This is what Andy Stanley calls history's greatest mystery. Why is it, how could it be that this little group with a supposedly dead Messiah that they're saying is alive would not fail but would grow not only in numbers but in power? There's a brilliant man. He's a, a doctor, a scientist. He's a professor, an author, and a lecturer. lecturer. Uh, he's from Washington University in St. Louis. His name is Dr. Uh, Joshua uh, Swamidis. And he's got this, this great little outline of things you have to reconcile about the resurrection of Jesus. About seven of these bullet points, and, and they're fantastic, just, to, again, to make you think about this. I won't go through all seven of them. 
But this is the one that I wanted to point out. He says this. Without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for an explanation. Like a movie that's missing a key scene. No other event in all recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, geographic borders. The message spread with unreasonable success across the world. During just the first few centuries, it spread without political or military power, prevailing against the ruthless efforts of dedicated, organized, and violent opposition. How did a small band of disempowered Jews in an occupied and insignificant territory of ancient Rome accomplish this unequaled act? You just have to think that through. How was this even possible? Well, the disciples would say, it's because it was true. It's because Jesus was alive. He is alive. And his resurrection power is taking this across the world. And I believe that if you will logically and rationally investigate some of the deeper questions of the resurrection, I believe that it will move you from doubtful at least to possible, maybe plausible, it can move you along that spectrum. And that's a good thing. That's not my goal for this time today. Because I want you to do more than just believe that the resurrection is true. Because it's not just something that was possible. It's something that is personal and powerful. For 2,000 years, literally billions of people, and in this room, Hundreds and hundreds of people would say, I believe not only that the resurrection is an event in history, but it's more than an event in history. It's powerful and it's personal for me. That it has transformed my life. It has changed my life. So in the next few minutes and the remaining time that we have together today, I want to just talk to you about why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so personally important to each one of us. Why it can be so impactful, not just an event in history. It's not just something that we should believe. It's something that we can experience. So to do that, I, I want to touch down on a few verses out of a passage in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans is a letter that Paul wrote. Now remember, Paul was the one that studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And he didn't believe the resurrection happened at first. In fact, he, he went all out to try and squash this whole concept. But then he met Jesus, and it changed everything, not just his belief system, the entire trajectory of his life. And he writes this letter to these followers of this risen Jesus in Rome. And in Romans chapter 8, which is a phenomenal chapter, I wish we had time to go through it, but he throws out a lot of questions. Again, not questions because he's doubting, questions that he wants them to wrestle with, questions he wants us to wrestle with, questions that make us think about this truth. And I'll say this before we get into it. If you don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus is truth, I'm hoping that in the next 10 or 12 minutes, you will wish it was true because of what I'm going to tell you about it. At least if you were honest, you go, yeah, I don't believe that, but I wish that was the case. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, what that means is that we have God's provision. We have God's provision for our lives. 
And sometimes they say, oh, yeah, he's probably talking about that. When you die, you get to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yes, all that. But, but even more than that, because early on in Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing, he says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that he's alive, is the spirit that dwells within me, that I have the resurrection power within me. And because of that, I can be brought into the family of God. I can experience the works of God. I can experience the glory of God. He lays all these benefits out of the fact that Jesus is alive. And then we read these words in verse 31 of of Romans 8. He says, and here's the start of his questions. What then shall we say in response to this? Of all these truths that he's just laid out. And then he does his own if then. I wonder if he learned this one from Gamaliel. He says, if, if God is for us, oh, then, then who could be against us? There's a good question right there. And we could stop right there. If we could come to the point where we believe that God is not angry at us, God's not looking for some reason to throw us in hell, God's not just trying to squish us and condemn us and punish us, that somehow we've got this whole idea that God is actually for us, I mean, that would go a long way for some of us in our view of God. But not only that, but if he's for us, then not only are we not fighting against God, but who could ever come up against us? I mean, if we've got the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God in our corner, and now, right now you might be saying, well, that, that would be great. I'm just not convinced that God is for me. I mean, I've done some stuff. And yes, you have. We've all done some stuff. And so Paul says, okay, well, let me try and illustrate how much God is for you. He goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Not for us religious leaders, us Jewish people, us church-going people, us followers that are so perfect. No, for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He said, just just a question. Just think about this. If God would not hold back when it came to the most expensive thing he's ever given, his son, the precious blood of his son, Jesus, what makes us think that all of a sudden he's going to get cheap on us later on in life? If he would give us this, will he not give us the things that we need? You say, well, I'm not sure if he's able to do that. In Ephesians, Paul says, it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that's at work within us. Maybe you need some of that resurrection power. Maybe you need some hope. Maybe you need some joy. Maybe you need some peace in the chaos. Maybe you need some strength to help through some circumstances that are very difficult and feel like they're completely out of control. That if Christ is alive, we have God's provision. And again, some of you are pushing back and say, yeah, Bob, that works for you. That's good. You're a pastor, all that. You have a warped view of me anyway, but, you know, it's all that. But, man, I really, I mean, you don't know the things I've done, and I really don't think God is on my side. I don't think he's for me. I've sinned. You know what? This is the one thing that we have in common with everybody in this room. We have all sinned. That's the beauty of this gift. It's because if Christ is alive, not, not only do we have God's provision, but we have God's payment. And that's the message of the cross, that Jesus paid the penalty of my sin, of your sin, that he died so that I wouldn't have to. He took on my punishment. He took on my guilt. He took on my shame. That's the entire message of the cross. And he's paid the penalty. Paul would write in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those 
whom God has chosen. Kind of a, kind of a courtroom situation. Who's going to say this one's guilty? And we'd say, well, God's the one because he's the one I've sinned against. He says, well, but, but, but wait. It's God who justifies. You're thinking God's going to charge you? God's the one who claims that you are innocent. God's the one who declares you righteous because of what Christ has done. Throws out another question. Who is he that condemns? And you say, well, okay, if it wasn't God, it must be Jesus. Because Jesus is actually the one that died on the cross. He's probably pretty ticked about that because that wasn't fun at all. He says, well, okay, well, Christ Jesus who died. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Moreover, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You think Jesus is the one that condemns you? He's the one over speaking on your behalf. He's representing you. He's over there fighting for you. And beside that, Jesus condemning you, John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. In fact, earlier in chapter 8 of Romans, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has paid the highest price against our penalty. He's paid for it. Let me try to illustrate it this way, of what God has done for each one of us. This last January, I got to check a, a bucket list item off of my list, something I've wanted to do for over 20 years. I went to the Barrett Jackson Auto Auction in Scottsdale, Arizona. Unbelievable. I mean, for seven days, they're auctioning these beautiful cars. Someone said, after I came home, said, um, what did you see that you couldn't afford? Everything. <laughs> I came home with a Corvette hat, a, a Mustang pin, and a Dodge shirt because they were giving them away. <laughs> and they would bring these cars across one after another, just beautiful cars, thousands of dollars. They would bid tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Over a million dollars they would bid on these cars and buy and sell them because they felt like they were worth their, the value of it. And you say, well, who in the world would ever do that? Well, not me, for one. But there are people that would. And not just that. I mean, you may not be aware of this. Outside of that auction, there's a whole line of cars that are just unbelievable. They're, they're called hypercars, not because they're hyperactive, because they're high performance. And they're created in limited editions. They're hand-built um, and they've got names that most of us have never heard of. Now, some of them we've heard of, like Lotus and, and Bugatti and McLaren. Some of you have heard those names. But then there's these, these companies, these obscure little elite bouquet, boutique companies, like um, Pininfarina or Zenvo. And one of my favorites is Pagani. It was started by a man named Horatio Pagani. Horatio Pagani. He and his team, about two and a half years ago, decided that they were going to design a new car that would be available in 2023. It takes 18 to 24 months for them to design a car and to get it to a production level. So they began to design this car. And the new car that is available from Pagani this year is called the Utopia. In fact, I've got a picture of the Utopia. This is a Pagani Utopia. And um, it's a beautiful car. There were only 99 of these that were going to be made. And they were priced at $2.5 million. Now, my birthday is coming up in a couple of months. <laughs> and I think your pastor would look good. But unfortunately, all 99 were sold before any of them were ever built. Who would do that? Pagani's son, Christopher, is his marketing director. And he said, with the increasing quality of these cars in limited edition, this is almost a bargain. 
of course you would expect that from a marketing director. But listen to what Horatio Pagani himself said about these cars. He said, when you spend $2.5 million to buy yourself a Pagani, and in some places with very high taxes, even more than that, we cannot say that it is a rational act. <laughs> I love this is the guy who builds and sells these things. In my opinion, it's something completely irrational. This is irrational. Yes, I agree. There's only thing, one, more, one thing more irrational than paying $2.5 million for a Pagani. It's if you would pay $2.5 million for this sweetheart. <laughs> one owner, little old lady, only drove it to church on Sundays. $2.5 million for that. That's not irrational. That is ludicrous. But you know what it illustrates? What God was willing to pay for each one of us. That we come to him in our sin, in our brokenness, in our failures. And he says, I will pay not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of my son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the price. And not only that, but if Christ is alive, not only do we have God's provision and God's payment, we have God's promise. It's interesting, when Pagani sells these cars, he signs each one of them individually, and I should hope so, for $2.5 million. But when God creates a masterpiece and he buys it, he signs it with the blood of his son. And he would write these words to the Roman church. Another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not just who, but what circumstances? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he goes on. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, of course, Jesus conquered death, so that's no longer anything to, in the equation. Neither death nor life, and he lists a whole bunch of things, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's his promise. Nothing can take us away from God's love. Nothing. So we begin to understand all this begin to see that the resurrection isn't just something to believe. It's something to experience. And I would say, even if you don't believe it, don't you wish all that was true? For 2,000 years, billions of people have said, it is true. I do believe it, and I experience it. I experience God's provision. I experience his forgiveness, the payment that he's done for my sins. I experience this promise of, of his love for me. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Now to all who have received him, to those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God, to have these benefits, to live in this resurrection. That gives us hope. Not just an event to remember from history but hope for today. Jeremiah would write in Lamentations these words. 
But this I call to mind. And I think about what we've just talked about in this sermon. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, including this morning. Great is his faithfulness. That this reality isn't something just from 2,000 years ago. It's a reality that has happened every single morning, including this morning. G.K. Chesterton wrote of how our God in his infinite godness has the capacity for joy beyond what we are even capable. And he uses this illustration that God in his divinity has this childlike capacity for joy. That children can exult in the monotony of the same thing done over and over again. You pick a child up and put him down and he's happy, but he says, do it again. You pick him up and put him down and do it again and over and over until your arms are led. And he keeps saying, do it again because he can exult in the monotony. Chesterton says, is it possible that our God can exult in the monotony? That every morning when the sun rises, he doesn't say, yep, it's another day. But he says, oh, that was cool. Let's do it again. And every night when the moon comes up, he's like, yeah, this is all part of the cycle. He goes, oh, that was good. Let's do it again. And Chesterton goes on and says, what about the daisies of the fields? We can say that God just creates them all, but what if? What if he creates them one at a time and says, ooh, yeah, do it again. Oh, love it. Do it again. Do it again. And he finds such great joy in this. And on that resurrection morning, when he proved of his provision and his payment and his promise. He found such joy. And every morning since then, he says, let's do it again. That the reality of the resurrection, it's today and every day. And we can live in that reality that every single morning when we wake up, God says, let's do it again. I've provided for you today. I've paid for your sin already. I promise you nothing can separate us. Let's do this life together. That's not just believing in the resurrection. That's experiencing the resurrection. And that's what I want for every single one of us, every single day. See, here at Cornwall Church, we're about one thing. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. Simple as that. Not just belief system, that's important, but to find and to follow Jesus. And today, I want to give you that opportunity. I just invite you right now just to bow your head and close your eyes. And if, if you want to go beyond just believing in the resurrection but experiencing it, I, I want to invite you to pray a prayer. It doesn't have to be these words, but something like this. God knows the posture of your heart. To pray something like this. Jesus, I believe that you're alive. And I want your resurrection to be the reality in my life. I need your resurrection power. I know that I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for paying for that. I ask you to forgive me. And this promise that you will love us and nothing will ever separate us from your love, I want to live in that reality. So Jesus, I pray that today you would be my forgiver. You'd be my friend. You'd be my Lord. And then I can walk in the reality of the resurrection every single day. Make that real in me. I pray this in your name. Amen.